Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. It's good to be with you again. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, here we are having another week. Still <laughs> feeling, you know, I, I forget sometimes. I think we've talked about this, but like it feels very much like the pandemic life here in Oakland still. We're now in, you know, May. And I imagine it will be that way when this airs in June. Uh, it's like, you know, <laughs> just same old for me so maybe one day in the podcast when we're back out and about again I won't start the podcast by just being like how you doing you know right but like (laughs) no it does seem to be um sort of lingering on I've I've been noticing at least a little bit like there's a little little less fewer people have masks on when they're outdoors walking and things which is refreshing yeah. but there's still a lot of like is this okay is this all right yeah. I don't know there's this very tentative feeling around all of it that is yeah weird <laughs> it's weird and it's still we are very real you know our friends in India are, are absolutely in the in in the worst of it right now and I just read an article that the UK is now sort of like seeing the variant that was in India so it is real you know it's it's one of the emotionally the hardest things about this seems to be that you know any expectations that we have about an end date continue to be thwarted you know what I mean like it's not there is no end now (laughs) it's just a question of how our world changes as a result of this exactly it's the light at the end of the tunnel but the tunnel continues to be getting longer yeah (laughs) it's more just like right it's like maybe the tunnel is becoming gradually brighter something like that (laughs) um yeah yeah it's 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 super wild um and difficult and um yeah uh but i am personally i mean you know having been I'm, I'm now fully vaccinated so I think I'm one of those people that doesn't wear a mask outside quite so much I like walking around and yeah same here and, and I'm loving that it feels yes. like an incredible kind of freedom to walk around my neighborhood without a mask for sure yeah um, yeah it's yeah. great it's nice Hey, Lindsay, I wanted to share something too. I recently got an unsolicited note on LinkedIn that totally made my week. And I really wanted to share it here. Um, This woman works in finance and ESG and she wrote, I'd love to connect. I really enjoy the podcast. It makes me think there's a tribe out there. And I just wanted to say, yes, Laura, there is a tribe out here. And it's all (laughs) kinds of people doing all kinds of things related to designing a better future. It made me so happy. And I love that our podcast gave that person a sense of that. It made me so, it made me just feel like what I get from this is maybe also being felt out somewhere out there in the world. Yay. I love that. And it's so thoughtful. So nice to hear the the feedback. feedback. Like, yeah. For those of you who don't know, like podcasting is a surreal thing in many ways (laughs) because we don't entirely, you know, it's not like a webinar where you kind of can see the number of people who are sitting there listening to you and sometimes they ask you questions we've talked about our producer actually had an idea that we do like a clubhouse thing which for those of you that are not familiar with clubhouse would be kind of a more interactive version of a yes podcast which would be super cool so we thought we've talked about doing that 
um, if you think we should, you can leave us a note somewhere, um, you know, like on Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, also, um, I, I know I say this at the end of every podcast, but we could really use more reviews. Like it's, I know that we have, we have a good like chunk. We have a few hundred people who listen to the podcast every week and it would be really helpful. I think, it, it, I think part of it is that the way that the, like the algorithm works, it doesn't show your podcast unless you have a certain score. It doesn't sh show it high up in the list unless you right. have like a certain score. Um, and by all accounts, people seem to be appreciating it, but like you actually have to go into the specific spot on Apple and, you know, put in a, a review for the, for the podcast gods yep. to know. <laughs> so That's right. If you That's haven't right. done that yet, please, please take do. a moment to, if, if you can, if you know how to do it, or if you're, if you like us, uh, it really does. Uh, help I think and it's just nice to know that I mean ultimately you know we do we do this for fun um, uh, and it's mostly just about us getting the word out getting for getting people to um, to know that we're there and that we're trying to celebrate all of these wonderful women so right um, yes absolutely and it helps us find yeah. people that are not in our sort of the ripples of our own networks as well so that's another benefit of that too so yeah yeah totally. you were describing the surrealness of a podcast and I would liken it to shouting into a void sometimes it feels <laughs> a little bit like that <laughs> that's I why know. the feedback that's why the feedback is so rewarding um yeah yeah it really is it's 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 fantastic so yeah if you're out there and you like this let us know because yeah, I mean, we could keep doing this forever. Uh, it wouldn't, you know, like, it, but it will probably have something to do with the question of like, do people continue giving us the positive response uh, that it's helpful to them and all of that. So yeah, um, we know that it has been, we've gotten some lovely notes um, like that one from Laura, um, but you know, uh, we're just eager for all of it. So uh, let us know. And um, speaking of fabulous women, I think we should just launch in to our guest for today, who I'm super excited about. Um, Martha Campbell is here with us from Rocky Mountain Institute. Welcome, Martha. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, it was so exciting. Um, Martha's work is gonna be so much fun for you all to hear about. It's, um, it's just such a pleasure. So just for those who don't know Martha, Martha is a principal in Rocky Mountain Institute. We'll, we'll refer to it as RMI, so get used to the acronym. RMI is Carbon Free Buildings Practice, uh, focused on fully decarbonizing the US building stock using standardized, affordable, and attractive advanced building construction methods and innovative business models. Martha is originally from El Paso, Texas. She has professional experiences as varied as learning green building techniques as a construction intern from renegade eco-architect Mike Reynolds, working in the ski industry, working for Rio Tinto's sustainable development team, field organizing in Northern New Mexico and program trading in the equities division of Goldman Sachs. She holds a bachelor's degree in international relations from Stanford and an MS and MBA from the University of Michigan. Super impressive, super varied, really fun background, Martha. Um, so yeah, thanks <laughs> Thank for being you. with us. Um, and and maybe if you can just give us a little peek into the into the past, you know, like um, 
it, it sounds like you've got some really formative experiences early on in your career, but like, tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you got involved in the sustainable building industry, uh, what led you to where you are today? Yeah, um, I guess, you know, it's all, it's all been a little serendipitous, but also it seems sort of like it was by design. Um, as a kid, I, you know, I've always loved the natural world. I loved playing outside. I loved building forts. Um, and my family used to go up to the upper peninsula of Michigan every summer, um, to Lake Superior. And I was a pretty wild place. Um, and I would just, you know, enjoy, um, time out on the lake and in the woods. And like I said, I, I, I had this giant fort that I made out in the woods. There was a ballroom and it was a kitchen. So I think I've always had a thing for buildings or quote unquote buildings, even if they're in my imagination. Um, and, and design. And I guess, you know, I, I, I do love um, finance and economics as well. And that was sort of the thread that I followed for kind of the first part of my career. And then um, I basically, uh, you know, took my, my father passed away when I was working at Goldman and I decided to leave and sort of take some time to reflect and go and pursue experiences that, you know, that you can only do maybe in your, in your 20s. Um, and one of them was I went to Australia and I was staying at a hostel in, a, in an area um, in Southern Australia called the Grampians that was a totally off the grid eco hostel. Um, and, you know, it was, it was kind of mind blowing to me. I just thought, why don't we, you know, construct all buildings this way? You know, it seems so straightforward. Um, and that was the little seed that got planted for me. And I, I really... Um, you know, I think this is about the same time when Inconvenient Truth came out and, you know, awareness around, um, you know, climate change and environmental issues weren't just associated with sort of, um, you know, a, you know, faceless people in other countries that were destroying the environment. It was really about our behavior as consumers. And so um, I, I kind of followed that thread and, you know, did everything from youth conservation work in northern New Mexico to field organizing, like you mentioned and read books like Natural Capital and Cradle to Cradle and decided that I wanted to marry my, my finance background um, with a focus on sustainability. So I went back and I got my dual masters at the University of Michigan and um, you know, basically uh, started to really think about conservation as my priority, but, but then realizing as I got, you know, again, more of an education on the climate science that uh, we were basically at, at, a, at a place where we needed to perform triage. Um, and if, you know, conservation efforts and protecting the natural world are something that you feel passionately about, if, if you don't address the climate crisis, it's sort of all a waste. Um, you can protect all the land you want, but, um, but if we don't address climate change, um, you know, we're, we're screwed. So, so basically I, um, was very fortunate to, uh, to be aware of RMI and, and to um, have the opportunity to, to work here. I, I applied for a position and, and um, got the job. And given you know, my interest in, in buildings, along with my background in finance, we thought that um, the building sector would be a great place for me to focus. And I picked up a lot of my, my knowledge of building science and high-performance buildings um, from working at RMI for the last eight years. Um, so I, I feel very fortunate that, um, you know, that, it, like I said, it was a bit serendipitous um, 
but, but it's always been a passion. Uh, and I, I never thought I would end up, um, in this, in this sector, but it's funny. I, I love real estate development and I feel like the work that we're doing, um, you know, really aligns with that. So sorry for being a little long-winded there, but I, I hope that gives you a little bit of a sense of my non-circuitous path here. Yeah, no, it's a it's great. Um, it's not long-winded at all. I feel like these things just take time, you know, like we all have, I don't know, some interesting twists and turns. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you for that. And I love this idea. We've actually had a couple of guests now talk about having traveled and been somewhere else in the world where buildings were fundamentally such different objects and Mm -hmm. that like informed their career path and I just find it so profound um and and helpful right that you have that you have taken that frame on this question um of like why can't all buildings be this way um, from being, you know, yeah, from experiencing life sort of off the grid. Um, that's just, it's super cool. And, um, and, and I love that it's brought you to where you are now, because it's, uh, you know, like, it's one thing to sort of have that experience and then decide, like, I'm just going to build another off the grid community. But like, you really got deep, in, like, as you said, in finance, and in these sort of business models, all this stuff. So, um, I, I just, I love that. I love that you found where you are. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit more about that. You have a, a very cool role at RMI. I know a lot of people, a lot of our listeners really admire the organization. Um, so I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what skills and experiences are good to have in coming mm-hmm. into the RMI team specifically the ones that work on buildings or in in roles like yours and the folks on your team yeah I um it's interesting I mean I I think that having the foundation of um you know energy modeling and building science is is critical you know and and it doesn't mean that you have to be um you know, the person always doing the energy modeling or, or, you know, designing the building. But I think having some foundation um, is uh, extremely helpful. Um, but it's, but as we've, as we've evolved, I'd say, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of things that are relevant in other sectors. I really do think finance is, um, especially in, in like the real estate and development sector, it's kind of, it's the cornerstone of how decisions are made. And when we're trying to, you know, our role at RMI is to influence others to take action. We don't own any real estate. We don't develop it. Um, so, so we're always sort of um, arm's length, right. From, from a certain degree of decision-making that we need to happen in the marketplace. And so the most powerful skills, in my opinion, uh, for being successful at RMI are the soft skills, right? Like being able to communicate effectively and to understand the language of your audience and what their interests are and how to align, you know, what their interests are with what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and so, you know, facilitation and negotiation skills, I think are really important. Um, and then, like I was saying, I, on the finance side, so much of um, the decision makers in the building and construction sector are 
developers and owners that it's all about the dollars and cents of, you know, how are they going to get the economics to work um, on these projects? And, you know, I think we sometimes take it for granted that the construction real estate sectors are, are sort of boom and bust sectors, right? You can get really rich or you can lose everything. Um, and it is, it really permeates the culture. And I think um, being able to understand that and uh, think about the problem from that perspective is, is really powerful. And we need more people that can do that to really help problem solve with real challenges that these organizations face um, from a fiscal standpoint. So I think th those are the high level recommendations that, that I would, I would make, but that, that foundational understanding of, you know, uh, building science and what we're doing to the buildings um, along with finance, I think are, are critical. And then, and then those communication skills and, and ability to influence others. That's really interesting, Martha, to hear you explain those and how they sort of all come together. And of course, I love hearing the, the communication side um, that you're stressing as well, because I think that's so important in the industry now, maybe more so in a way that it wasn't in its older incarnation, but in the context of climate, uh, response and, and how we're trying to effectively persuade various players to participate in that. I feel like it's increasingly important. Um, mm -hmm. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit um, about the work at RMI. There's so much going on there and you have a really interesting piece of, of that that you're tackling with your team. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I guess, um, I mean, at a high level, uh, just to give a brief synopsis of, of RMI, um, RMI has been around for almost 40 years now. It was co-founded um, by Amory and Hunter Lovins um, in, in the Roaring Fork Valley of Colorado. Uh, its sort of genesis was around energy security and kind of looking at two kind of two futures. One was an energy secure future that had more geopolitical stability um, and the other was one where we were heavily reliant on fossil fuels um, and, and uh, subject to, you know, to greater geopolitical instability because of that. Um, and so, you know, from that, we have focused on the four end uses of energy historically. So buildings, transportation, industrials, and the power sector. Um, we are now a, a global organization. Um, we have offices in um, Beijing. We just opened an office in Delhi. Um, we have, I think, an office in DC, New York, Oakland, um, Basalt, Colorado, and Boulder, Colorado. Um, and so we're kind of taking uh, our theory of change to, to other markets, obviously, um, you know, being respectful of the local context, but really trying to decarbonize um, the economy using market-based approaches. We're very highly focused on market-based approaches. Uh, so I work within the buildings practice, um, focused on uh, the U.S. built environment specifically. And, um, you know, I, I guess I'd say that the work I, I'm doing today, its origin story um, sort of starts with uh, we, we launched a Residential Energy Plus program back in, in 2015 here at RMI, and we invited um, these guys from the Netherlands to talk about this idea called Energy Sprong. And what they had done in the Netherlands was they were using offsite and, in, you know, sort of industrialized construction to, um, to manufacture 
standardized retrofit packages for social housing in the Netherlands. And, and, and these retrofit packages were designed to take the social housing to net zero energy. Um, and it was, it was just a really visual and powerful way of tackling sort of these uh, historic issues of like energy efficiency and how do we get people to adopt energy efficiency and how do we, you know, how do we um, get people to adopt solar? And it was sort of turning the whole thing on its head because I think historically everybody's been focused on the utility sector. Uh, and this, this group of individuals was like, no, we need to totally transform the construction sector. This just needs to be how buildings get constructed. And we need to figure out a way to better capture and monetize the, you know, other benefits that not just utility cost savings, but it's water, you know, water, water utility savings, resiliency, um, you know, health benefits, et cetera, and use that, plow that into, um, you know, the, the capital stack of these projects so that when major capital improvements are happening, we just, we just take these buildings all the way to zero. Let's forget the incremental stuff. And it was, what was really powerful about their approach as well was, and you can see a video of it. Um, if you just go onto YouTube and um, search for energy sprung, there's a, a video of a retrofit that is done in a day. Um, what's so powerful about it is it's like, there's a contagion effect to it. It's not like most of the time efficiency was like, we're going to go crawl into your attic and we're going to, we're going to do some air sealing and we're going to put in some insulation and a homeowner gets home and the, the building looks the same and you spend you know money on it. And it's just not a very satisfying purchase. Whereas with what they were doing, they were literally rewrapping the building with these beautiful new facades. Um, they were putting a brand new high performance roof with pre-installed solar on top. You get um, a completely new set of mechanical systems. The tenants loved it. They were getting a brand new all electric kitchen and then a, a, a bathroom update. So it was like a full remodel. It was like getting a new house. Um, and so, you know, you see, you visually see the difference between, between these buildings. Now, in, you know, in the US, we have a lot of different climate zones. Not everything needs to be rewrapped. And, you know, obviously these things um, cost money right now, but that vision just really took the audience, you know, by storm, understandably, it was just a totally new way of thinking about the problem. And so I've been working on, on that ever since. And we've been very focused on, um, you know, taking their approach, which is a, a market facilitation approach. Uh, it's not just about the technology. It's about how do we create an ecosystem that's conducive to the construction sector starting to have this kind of an offering. Um, and it's now expanded uh, to, to the point where the Department of Energy um, selected us to run an advanced building construction collaborative where we're looking at both new construction and retrofits. And how do we, again, bring high performance construction into the mainstream while also helping address a lot of the productivity issues um, that the construction sector is facing. And we're seeing skyrocketing costs material shortages, labor shortages, it feels sort of like it's at a breaking point. Um, and so I think it's a pretty uh, exciting time to try and, and be engaging with industry on how can we take more of the techniques that we see in Europe. For example, in Sweden, 85% of residential buildings are made offsite. They are predominantly modular. Um, I mean, it's, it's just incredible um, how far we have to go. So 
anyway, long-winded answer again to your question, but that is what I spend my time working on day to day. Which is so interesting. Um, I really, there's so many elements of that I want to dig into. Um, (laughs) But the main, I mean, mainly too, I mean, that percentage that you just quoted about Sweden, it is so hard to imagine that kind of transition to that point here. It's just such a different model. I think it was actually Hunter Levins who used the term recalcitrant when she was describing Mm. the construct, the construction industry in terms of like being, you know, its willingness to evolve and change. And when we, you know, when you talk about sort of system change, but, um, but I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, um, that made offsite question. And because, you know, prefab and modular and a lot of those things, they've been around for a long time. Um, There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of interesting prototype work and and experimental work, um, but it hasn't really ever scaled here in the way that some of us had hoped or imagined that it might. Um, Can you talk a little bit about from your perspective, like why why might now be the time for that? Yeah, I, I mean, from my perspective, I agree with you, right? With this, this hasn't taken off and it's for many, many reasons. And I think some would argue that, you know, not very different from the challenges we're seeing in transitioning off, um, you know, oil, oil for, for powering our automobiles. It's like there are in, um, intrinsic, uh, interests or inherent interests. I don't know if I'm using the right word either time. Um, that, you know, are incumbent interests that want to maintain the status quo. This is how they make money. Um, and I think that you see, you see that really in sort of how the construction, not just the construction sector, the building code and permitting um, ecosystem works in most jurisdictions, right? It's like every single municipality can have a different building code. Um, you know, there are, there are obviously very strict um, uh regulations and standards around like testing, safety testing, and, you know, getting certain certifications like a, you know, UL, UL certification and things like that. Um, but on the whole, it's, it's this patchwork that is not set up for allowing for mass production or standardization because every single municipality works a little bit different and you have code officials, um, and, and permitting officials that, you know, you have to respond to. And, um, and I think a lot of, you know, different interests in the construction sector like it that way, because it's like, it allows them to basically maintain a monopoly and a hold on their local markets. And, and so I think it's, uh, you know, this, this is very, um, the reason things are staying the same is, is because people want it to stay that way to protect their interests. And it's very, uh, fear driven, right? It's like, if it changes, I lose. Um, and I think that, the work that we're, we're doing right now is to, is basically seeking to show people, actually, you might win, right? You're like a lot of contractors are having, um, real challenges with, uh, a revolving door. They have attrition rates that are just like through the roof, right? They cannot keep people on a job site. They, they really need skilled labor. It's very hard to find skilled labor. It's becoming more expensive because less people are, are joining the trades. Um, and I think people are sort of at this breaking point where they're, they're, you know, they're, they're between a rock and a hard spot and they're sort of tired of being there. And I think that the pandemic is really um, highlighting so many of these structural issues that we have in this sector. I mean, we're having massive supply chain issues. 
um, of this labor shortage, which is really um, a function of our immigration laws, right? And so everyone's sort of doing a reevaluation. I actually had a, a conversation with a contractor in El Paso, my, my hometown. And he said, you know, the business is crazy. I've got to make hay while I can. He said, because once we really reopen the border, he said, people over there are hungry. They are desperate because they haven't been working for over a year. And it is going to be a bloodbath when we open the border again, because everybody is going to be willing to work for nothing. And I am going to not be able to compete. And so this is like on the ground reality that people are facing. And it's like, what if this is a time for us to look at a new model where we have consistent employment in buildings where we can sort of protect people, right? And, you know, put it, put them in a healthier environment, a more consistent um, process for building. Um, It might be a a win-win for a lot of folks, right? It's a more consistent process for code and permitting officials to understand what's going to be happening on a project, that quality control aspect that's so hard to manage will be streamlined. So, this is what we're hoping to accomplish in our conversations through the collaborative is having real difficult conversations, right? Let's put the, you know, the PC stuff aside. Let's, let's talk about the hard stuff that really is on people's minds instead of sort of putting each other in boxes of who's a good guy and who's a bad guy and figure this out. So that's why I think that this is a great time for this. Cause I, you know, we have to do this if we're going to solve the climate crisis. So part of me is like, I, I'm pushing for this. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe it's never going to be the right time. And the other part of it is we're at this sort of structural breaking point, just given skyrocketing housing prices, people can't even buy homes anymore. You know, it's like, there's no inventory. It's just, everything feels like it's out of whack and it's time for recalibration. Yeah. That seems like the perfect time to me. And what's so interesting to me about your background and, and RMI's approach is that coming to that conversation, you know, with the financial perspective and the understanding of the whole ecosystem permitting and everything that you were describing is the best shot we have, I think, at, at helping all those players understand how they could come out um, ahead mm-hmm. with a new model, the way you're describing, which is really promising and makes me feel hopeful, which is kind of mm. rare these days. <laughs> um, I hear you. Yeah. So I wanted to shift gears just a tiny bit and ask in case I haven't gotten it, you haven't gotten a chance to touch on something that uh, we want. We always like to ask um, our guests what uh, they are most proud of accomplishing in their work life. Could be anything. Yeah. I mean, this is sort it's sort of a non- a non sequitur, but, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, so I worked on the 2008 Obama campaign in Española, New Mexico. Um, and you're actually reminding me with my, my answer to this question that <laughs> one of the most valuable skills I think people need to have are community organizing skills. Um, and that was, that was what we did in 2008. We went to, you know, these communities in Northern New Mexico, where there is some degree of social capital there for sure. Um, They're very tight knit communities. Um, And we tapped into that social capital, but we also, I think augmented it. Um, And it was, it was just an an incredible experience because, um, you know, Española is a pretty, uh, pretty um, poor place. Uh, We were working in, in Rio Riba County. 
Um, but you know, when we were, we were canvassing, right. Going door to door and talking to people about who they were going to vote for and what their, um, you know, what their sort of issues were of concern and things like that. And, you know, we, we had this list that we would get, um, you know, from the DNC has, a uh, uh, you know, like a, a data platform of kind of, you know, historic voting patterns and who, you know, who's kind of voted democratic historically, but none of that was accurate. And we were just kind of blindly going out there and knocking on doors. And, and, and also this was kind of like, right. I feel like when Google maps was like really taking off, but none of the roads were properly named. Like what was on Google maps was not the name of the actual road addresses were incorrect. I mean, it was just sort of, it was sort of like the wild west. Um, we went out there and we just started connecting with people and talking to people and we built this massive, you know, spreadsheet. I was actually in a Google doc, I think. Um, and, you know, basically took these, um, Google earth images and like geotagged, like where people were and, um, and, you know, had information from our conversations and we built this, like, it was like a war room. Like we had this giant map on the wall where we could basically on election day say, okay, we've gone and talked to, you know, Luis, or we've gone and talked to Maria or whoever it was, because we didn't have any, any, um, optics with the sort of systems that we were currently using. And we built our own, um, our own system for identifying people and making sure that everybody got out to vote. And there was one, um, little town, um, El Rito, which is in, in the Northern part of Rio Riva County. And I think they have like a 99% voter turnout. Like I think one person didn't vote or something. And it was just astronomical. Like the, what we were able to accomplish by, interfacing with people, but also using kind of this technology at the time and being scrappy and, and sort of bootstrapping it. And I just, it was such an incredible feeling, not only to see the community come together like that and to get that kind of turnout, but then obviously the results, right. It was a historic moment, um, you know, for the U S to have a first black president and to really feel like we were a part of that success. So for me, um, that, that was, you know, an incredible experience. Um, and, and one, I, I always, I always hope that I'll have another feeling like that again someday. (laughs) I love that example, Martha. It's so powerful. It strikes me that it's a little bit in terms of thinking about that as the kind of experience that, that young people coming in should consider and think about. It's, it's, it's a little bit like some kind of domestic Peace Corps, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, at a certain point, a lot of people went and did the Peace Corps as part of their post-college pre-work kind of uh, perspective. And this is that it sounds to me like community uh, engagement and organizing in that way would be a really is, yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. incredibly powerful. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, so I have, this is a, a slightly different kind of question. We like to talk about, you know, the green building industry is often thought of or referred to as a movement. And I'm, we're, we always like to talk to our guests. Do you feel like you are a part of the industry or a part of the movement or, or how do you think about those things for yourself? I guess my, my origin, right. Would be in the movement. Um, you know, I definitely, I definitely became curious about sustainability and, um, you know, decarbonized buildings or, or yeah, sustainable buildings. Um, you know, I guess in the early, 
early 2000s. Um, and now I feel like I'm, I'm part of the industry. And, um, I, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think that we, you know, when I, you know, when I kind of got started in this space, like I was out working on these beautiful buildings they are called earthships and in Northern New Mexico, they're like art. Um, and they're, they're very much kind of a, um, a labor of love to build. They're, they're very labor intensive. You have to go out there and pound, pound tires. Um, you know, you take these, you know, it was, it was basically like they wanted to try and solve a number of environmental issues, like using waste and, um, you know, uh, mitigating, um, your energy load and all this stuff, um, to create these off the grid homes. And, and so it was a very sort of bespoke, um, experience or, or type of building. And, you know, when I was out there, I loved it, but, you know, one of, one of the challenges I think the entire group recognized was like, how do we get this to scale beyond just our tribe, right? Like we can't, we can't save the planet if it's just a few of us that believe in this. Um, and that means it has to be accessible to a lot of different people that maybe, you know, don't get my tribe. Um, and so, so for me, I really, I really think for us to say that we are successful, we need to, yes, we can start a movement, but the movement needs to move beyond the emotional and sort of the high level, um, uh, sort of visionary aspects of, of what we think should happen and get into the brass tacks of like, okay, now how does this work? How do you help people implement this day to day in a way that really, um, is viable with like how they make an, how they make a living and their values in their communities. Right. And so I, I am excited that this feels like it's moving in the direction of being part of an industry where this is just how you build things. Um, that's my hope. Um, so I, I guess that would be, be my response. Like, I, I feel like I've been part of a wave and I'm, I don't want to say I see the wave cresting. I, I see it building and now it's, it's becoming the ocean as opposed to just one wave. I love that. What a wonderful metaphor. It totally makes sense. And I, it's, yeah, um, <laughs> super great. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So you kind of got at this a little bit with the metaphor about being a part, you know, sort of um, w- where we are in this process, but I'm curious if you have more detailed thoughts about um, what you think we've done well so far as, as a movement and in getting into the industry and, and maybe like where you, where you think we haven't done as well. Did you, you, you were probably one of those people who thought about the year 2020 as a bit of a milestone. So how do you think we're doing if you had to zoom out and think about this, you know, as a, as a process that we're all going through? Yeah. Um, and when you say what we're doing well, do you mean sort of in the, in the building sector in general or, or yeah, broader building sector? Yeah. I, I, I think just anything about um, the transformations that we're trying to accomplish in the building sector around, yes. you know, climate in particular, like, how's it going? What are the, what have we done? Well, what have we not done? Well, yeah, I think that um, I think, some of the breakthroughs have been on the finance side, like, you know, um, I think pace financing was really important for sort of solving the challenge of like, especially commercial pace, right? I think residential pace is obviously facing a lot of controversy right now. 
um, and and is you know I think uh, Renovate America is um, uh, I think filing for bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, so so I, I I you know that might people might say, gosh, how can you use that example? But I think the actual tool of Pace is a powerful one because right when you're working with um, real estate investors whose hold periods are three years, five years. I mean, there's a real issue around hold periods, dissuading them from investing in kind of long-term performance of buildings. And this sort of helps solve that issue. And I think that it is still alive and well and thriving on the commercial side. So I think that's been a big success. I think, you know, our, our focus on kind of how do we, um, manage buildings more effectively and, and using sort of the internet of things and, and data for building management systems. And I think there's kind of a, a thriving ecosystem around that. And you have players like, you know, Google and Apple, um, you know, that are, that are very focused right on, on doing that well and sort of leveraging their core competency of, of data analytics. But where it feels like it stopped short is it's sort of like nibbling at the edges. Like, buildings are infrastructure, right? They're concrete and steel and wood and how those um, infrastructure pieces are put together really determine like the true operational performance and embodied carbon, right? Implications of, of a building. And, and that's like, you know, requires um, venture capital and investing and, and, and getting a little bit more disciplined about their investments in quote unquote construction tech um, and like investing in uh, like large amounts of capital, like far more than when you invest in like an, an application startup or something like that. Like, you know, we're talking billions of dollars of investment that are needed to get these um, companies to really, to really function um, in the way that's necessary when we're talking about building infrastructure. Um, and that I think is is an area where we'll hopefully continue to see, um, you know, uh, ca- capital getting a little bit more savvy, um, but also taking a, a little bit more risk, right? Um, putting putting their neck out there a little bit. Um, so that that to me uh, feels like an area for for improvement. Like if we're really going to be serious about solving the climate crisis, we have to address the embodied carbon in buildings, and we we have to go like deep, get deep efficiency in my opinion, uh, you know, just throwing more solar on the roof or throwing some batteries in the house, you know, yes, that's, that should be a part of sort of this optimization problem that we have to figure out for what's the perfect amount of efficiency. But, you know, let's look at what happened in Texas. I mean, I really, I really believe that if people had been living in high performance buildings that were properly insulated, like a passive house building, they would have been a lot more comfortable. Their pipes wouldn't have been freezing um, because passive houses can basically maintain um, a certain temperature range for much longer periods of time, um, you know, than, than other types of construction. And so there's this resiliency piece of this that we need to start thinking about more clearly um, when we're designing buildings. It's not just, oh, you know, don't worry about efficiency. Solar so cheap now. We'll just slap more solar up there. Um, so I'd like, I'd like to see, uh, that be a little bit more a part of the discussion. Um, but, uh, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, it totally did. And I completely agree. Um, it's such a funny thing now. I like, 
I mean, I remember actually sitting next to Amory Levins in a room full of people talking about um, clean energy and and um, and we, we were the efficiency nerds in the room and, mm-hmm. and it was, uh, we were definitely losing the battle of rhetoric in that situation. Um, and, uh, and I had, it was my uh, wonderful bonding moment with Amory Levins that I will never forget. But <laughs> it, one of the things that I have started thinking about so much more these days, which you really articulated well, is the way that um, it, we're maybe not so much focused on the question of efficiency being inherently valuable anymore. I think we all kind of knew that resilience was the bigger priority or health or sort of you know, um, just, yeah, this, the sturdiness of our buildings, um, the, the condition that they're in, but there, there's that, I, I think I've always been on that team and I, it sounds like you have as well, which is that it's, it's really not just about decarbonizing, it is about making sure that buildings are, are healthy and safe places to live. Um, and, and I think, yeah, we're, I just think it's a great to hear you mention that because we are at a really wonderful inflection point around a lot of political will and interest in in um, decarbonization, uh, which doesn't necessarily uh, build resilience if we don't do it right. And so it's a, it's a great reminder that we have to do both um, in order to kind of meet the challenges of the next decade. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm totally with you. Well um, said, well said. Yeah. Well, no, no, you, you, you said it better, but I, I just want to make sure everyone hears that because I think it's, it's, it's something that has come up with some of our guests. We've talked a little bit about resiliency and things, um, and it just continues to be something I, I hope we're all reflecting on. Um, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we don't. We are, we're basically out of time. We have one last question we like to ask all our guests, and so um we would love to hear you you answer um it is just about who you are most inspired by these days it could be anyone or anything um what keeps you going hmm gosh i you know i i'm not gonna lie this year this year was hard (laughs) Mm -hmm. um you know i am inspired by people who who keep plodding on like in the midst of sort of major setbacks and, um, you know, discouragement, discouraging times, right? Like I think every generation has had a dark period and, and, you know, why should ours be any different? And, um, and you just kind of have to, you have to keep, um, you know, keep the faith and and stay the course. And I I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm, um, you know, on an RMI promotion bandwagon. But I mean, I think Amory is like pretty impressive that, I mean, he's been doing this for 40 years and he just keeps going. Um, and, and I think there's something, you know, something to be said, said for like, you know, just kind of staying the course. Uh, and, and then I, I, I also, I, I feel like this is a generic response, but I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's maybe it's the shiny object. My eyes keep getting drawn to, but I'm like really impressed by Tesla. And, and I say Tesla because it's not just about Elon Musk. He's, you know, he's, he's fun. He's exciting. He's a great figurehead, but it, it's about the people that believe in, in what they're doing over there. And that is exactly what we need in the building sector. Like how many giant automotive companies have been dragging their feet saying it's just impossible to do electric vehicles. It just doesn't make sense. They just drag their feet, drag their feet. 
And I mean, now you look at the road and it's like, I honestly, it feels like every car is a Tesla. And sometimes that, you know, that can get a little bit old. I'd like to see a little more variety out there, but the, (laughs) but the point is like, they have disrupted the market and that is a very capital intensive industry. I mean, it costs you know, billions of dollars to start the manufacturing facilities that they have developed. And they just, they just stayed super focused, you know, dismiss the naysayers and look at them. I mean, look at what they're doing, look at how they have disrupted so many different sectors. And I don't think, I don't even think they're anywhere near being done. They're just getting started. And I, I mean, I just hope they can sustain that energy because that takes a ton of, um, you know, sort of, uh, commitment and, and dedication and conviction to do. Um, so mm-hmm. that's, that's what gets me excited. I want to see more of that type of activity, um, in the private sector, you know, enough foot dragging, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And when you don't find it, somebody's going to come eat your lunch and eat Tesla and Elon Musk is eating a lot of people's lunch. So, um, yeah, those are my fighting, fighting firebrand words, but, um, big, <laughs> a big shout out. Cause you know, they're doing it. Yeah. I love that. That's a wonderful way to end for the day. Um, hopefully a good, like kick in the pants for everybody. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I like keep, to do. <laughs> yeah. Find the good fight. Um, well, thank you so much, Martha. It's been such a pleasure to have you on so many good stories and, and so much great work that you're doing. Um, so yeah, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, that is it for us this week on uh, the design, the future podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us stay safe and we'll see you next week.